0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, February 6th. In today's news, Bernie Sanders has his best fundraising month ever, as Elizabeth Warren is forced to cancel advertising buys. A briefing for senators on the coronavirus gets testy, prompting the HHS secretary to apologize. And President Trump suspends global entry programs for New Yorkers in retaliation for the state's immigration policies. But first, the big idea. Mitt Romney sealed a place in history yesterday by voting to convict Trump of abuse of power, becoming a lone voice of dissent in a Republican party that otherwise marched in lockstep with the president throughout the impeachment proceedings. Romney voted against the second article of impeachment, which accused the president of obstruction of Congress. But on the first article, the 2012 Republican presidential nominee said that he found the evidence against Trump overwhelming, and the arguments by the president's defense ultimately unconvincing. Romney's decision, which he announced in a deeply personal speech on the Senate floor, where he spoke of his faith and constitutional duty, sparked an immediate and intense outcry among Trump's supporters, theory Romney acknowledges is unlikely to fade. Donald Trump Jr., the president's son, called for him to be expelled from the party, while many of Trump's congressional allies and even some former Romney staffers cast him as a bitter and irrelevant relic, of a Republican establishment that has all but crumbled in Trump's wake. The senator from Utah stood by his decision as that criticism mounted, maintaining that Trump abused his office by pressuring Ukraine to investigate a political rival. Romney's vote was hailed by many Democrats as an example of unflinching political courage. Romney's father, George Romney, the late Michigan governor and 1968 presidential candidate, was a prominent figure in the Republican Party, who was known for being guided by his Mormon faith and a commitment to public service and civil rights. Romney doesn't speak very often of his father or his faith, at least in public, but friends say that a desire to make his late father proud weighed heavily on him. Inside the Senate GOP cloakroom, Romney's decision was greeted with disappointment, but relatively little surprise. Ever since he was elected to the Senate in 2018, the 72-year-old senator has parted ways with his party at times and has occasionally criticized Trump. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell appeared ready to move on from the trial and did not threaten Romney. For Romney, breaking with Trump carried not just political consequences in a party he once led as its standard bearer, but also some awkward family dynamics. Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel is the daughter of Romney's older brother. She's one of the president's biggest loyalists, and she stood firmly by the president over her uncle yesterday. She tweeted, quote, This is not the first time I've disagreed with Mitt, and I imagine it will be It will not be the last. Already, there is a bill in the Utah state legislature that would allow voters to remove a sitting senator from office. Last week, the Conservative Political Action Conference disinvited Romney to its annual event. When Romney was in Florida over the weekend with his wife, a person at the airport yelled at him that he was a traitor. Someone else later told him to get with the team, followed by an epithet. Romney said his decision to vote to convict the president was the hardest one he's ever had to make. He said he's been struggling to sleep at night and been waking up before 4 a.m. every day. For a time, he thought or at least hoped that Trump's request to Volodymyr Zelensky on that July 25th phone call represented little more than a throwaway line. As more information came out, though, Romney came to a more worrisome conclusion that the president had committed a potentially impeachable act. He said he hoped the president's defense would present evidence during the trial that could exonerate the president. He said he even contacted the White House Counsel's Office through a fellow senator asking if it would provide affidavits from officials like former National Security Advisor John Bolton or acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, but to no avail. They wouldn't offer anything sworn. Romney dismissed arguments that a president could be impeached only if there was a statutory crime, calling that absurd on its face and saying he could think of nothing more egregious in terms of assaulting our constitutional system than corrupting an election and getting a foreign power to do it for you. What Trump tried to do, Romney has said, is what autocrats do in tin horn countries. He says the question of Trump's fate will now be decided in the November election. He predicted the president will get reelected because of the strong economy. Yet, in a later season of a political life that began at the side of George Romney, Mitt Romney says he kept coming back to those questions of duty and faith. As he put it in his speech on the Senate floor, we're all footnotes at best in the annals of history. But in the most powerful nation on earth, the nation conceived in liberty and justice, that is distinction enough for any citizen. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, I'm in Concord, New Hampshire this morning where I'll be camped out through the primary. You might hear the snowplow outside in the parking lot. It's been snowing all night long, and there are blizzard-style conditions here as the candidates recalibrate for a critical New Hampshire primary and a high-stakes debate tomorrow night. Bernie Sanders announced this morning that he raised $25 million in January, his best fundraising month so far. More than 648,000 people contributed, including 219,000 new donors. The campaign just announced plans to spend $5.5 million more in television and digital commercials across eight states that vote on Super Tuesday, and it will increase advertising that's already been scheduled in California and Texas, the two mega states that also vote on March 3rd. Meanwhile, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren acknowledged yesterday that they're facing growing difficulties following disappointing results in Iowa. Both are changing their strategies to improve their chances in the primary here next Tuesday. After admitting that his fourth-place finish was a, quote, "...gut punch," Biden attacked both Sanders and Pete Buttigieg at length yesterday before a standing-room-only crowd at the VFW Hall in Somersworth. Warren, meanwhile, just canceled half a million bucks worth of TV ads that had been scheduled to run in Nevada and South Carolina after her third-place finish failed to provide the fundraising bump that her campaign had been counting on to pay for those ads. With 96% of the Iowa precincts finally reporting, Judge held 26.4% of the state delegate equivalents, followed by Sanders with 25.7%. Sanders continues to maintain his lead in the popular vote, 43,674 to Judge's 42,175. Warren had 18% of the delegates and Biden trailed with just under 16%. And there are signs of a shakeup inside the Biden campaign. Biden's Iowa state director, Jake Braun, will not continue to serve as a full-time campaign employee. Braun, who was national deputy field director for Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, had been hired in May to oversee Biden's operation in Iowa. The campaign also said it will not retain Adrian Bogan, who was overseeing their Iowa field operation. There's growing finger-pointing and blame going around inside the Biden operation over who's to blame, although a lot of staffers privately say that it's the candidate's fault. Meanwhile, Warren's campaign manager accused Buttigieg's top strategist of using Twitter to signal to a supportive super PAC where to spend money. Buttigieg advisor Michael Halley sent out a tweet yesterday saying that messages about the former mayor's military experience work especially well in Nevada, where it's critical they see this on the air through caucus day. Warren manager Roger Lau replied, Did you mean to tweet out this instruction to your super PAC? The super PAC in question, VoteVects, issued a statement saying that its officials independently decide their ad strategy, but they've been spending heavily to boost Judge by emphasizing his military experience. We'll see if they up their buy in the Silver State. All this back and forth foreshadows a heated debate tomorrow in New Hampshire. It will air on ABC. Seven candidates have qualified. It's the same six who were in last month's debate, plus Andrew Yang. The four remaining contenders, Tulsi Gabbard, Michael Bennett, Mike Bloomberg, and Deval Patrick, have one day left to meet the criteria. But Gabbard appears to be the only person who is on the bubble and might be able to get there. Number two, a patient in Wisconsin has tested positive for the coronavirus, bringing the total in the United States to 12 as the global toll grew to 563 dead and more than 27,000 ill as the health crisis continues to spread out of China. Several U.S. senators confronted Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar yesterday afternoon about the administration's response to the virus during a closed-door briefing that turned testy. The two Democratic senators from Hawaii were particularly irate. They complained that their state health officials had not been notified in advance that their airport would be one of 11 to receive and quarantine U.S. citizens arriving from the Chinese province where this virus started. Brian Schatz from Hawaii challenged Azar about the communications breakdown, and Azar grew defensive. Then, later in the briefing, he apologized to Schatz for the tenor of his tone in their conversation. The lack of coordination has been acute in Hawaii. Both of the state's Democratic senators, the other is Maisie Hirono, unloaded on the administration. Schatz described what they've done so far as something the Keystone cops would do. This is the first quarantine ordered by federal health officials in more than 50 years, and the CDC acknowledges that it's having to improvise. But the tensions in Washington are nothing compared to what's going on in Beijing. China's conspicuously absent leader reemerged last night amid the coronavirus crisis, but only for an audience with a friendly autocrat. A full week after his last appearance in the state media, Xi Jinping was finally seen. Not to console quarantine patients in Wuhan or thank the tireless doctors who are treating them, but for an audience with Cambodia's autocratic leader. Xi's usually ubiquitous face had been pictured in state media only one time in the previous 12 days, a week before when the director general of the World Health Organization came to Beijing and praised the Chinese government's response to the crisis in ways more often associated with party propagandists. Although the state media said that she was personally directing and personally planning the full response to the crisis, there have been no photos of a man who has styled himself as the people's leader actually mingling with the hoi polloi to fight what's being framed on state TV as a people's war. She was not in scrubs and a face mask meeting with healthcare workers on the front lines. It was the premier who got that assignment. And there's been no footage of him inspecting the pop-up hospitals being erected in Wuhan. The vice premier was dispatched for that task. This vacuum was filled, as vacuums are wont to do, with baseless rumors that she had experienced a stroke or been overthrown. This is a political crisis for the Chinese. Number three. The Trump administration will no longer allow New York residents to enroll in global entry or other trusted traveler programs, citing new sanctuary policies that limit federal access to state driver's license data. Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf announced this last night on Fox News, naturally. He told host Tucker Carlson that he sent a letter to the New York State Department of Motor Vehicles, informing the agency that the state's new limits on information sharing with Customs and Border Protection make it impossible for federal authorities to process traveler applications. The measure is one of the Trump administration's most significant retaliatory moves yet, and more are expected, against sanctuary cities and other jurisdictions and states that limit local cooperation with federal immigration authorities. Trump trained a great deal of fire on these cities and states, including New York, but also California during his State of the Union. An official with DHS says the move will affect about 150,000 New York state residents who apply for the program each year. Travelers currently enrolled in global entry and programs like Century and Nexus won't lose their status, but they will not be allowed to renew. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, February 6th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman.